416-216-5910. That's the number to get a hold of Savannah anytime and help at insurance, pardon me, help at theinsurancelawyer.ca through email. We'll get to a very interesting cool uh, tool called the Injury Calculator here in just a bit, but we always like to start with some cases that have come across your desk you're either done or working on or uh, otherwise with the week that was. So what do you got for me this week? Well, let's start off, uh, first of all, with some of the uh, news that has been on the um, TV and on radio about pedestrians. Uh, getting 18 hit. in one day last I'm telling you, left, right, and center. I mean, I, I have here references from the Toronto Star. Uh, this is back uh, October 20th. Uh, I think it says seven were hit during rush hour. Then I see another one here uh, that talks about, uh, um, I, I think, about 10 that were hit in one hour. I mean, it's just insane. It's a game of Frogger out there. It's just it? absolutely crazy. People have to be careful. Don't, uh, don't jaywalk. Make sure that you're looking left and right. You know, everything your parents taught you. But let's talk about what happens from a legal standpoint when a pedestrian is struck by a car because it is important to understand. So for pedestrians, obviously, as as we can imagine uh, you have uh, a vehicle that hits uh, an individual, you're probably going to have injuries unless we're talking about movement at, you know, one kilometer an hour. Uh, So so what happens? What does the person who's injured do? What are their obligations with respect to insurance if they are injured, etc.? So number one, make sure that uh, you notify your own automobile insurer uh, if you in fact struck a pedestrian because it's very likely that the pedestrian who's injured is going to be making a claim for compensation yep. if they are injured. But what happens uh, with respect to the individual, him or herself? What happens if you, John, are crossing the street and you are struck by a car? Who pays you compensation? Who pays you accident benefits? And against whom can you actually make a claim right. for compensation for pain and suffering, income loss, etc.? Well, believe it or not, if you are a pedestrian but you also have automobile insurer. I find that so weird. It's your own automobile insurer, even though you were walking at the time that you were hit. You were not driving a car. You, in fact, were hit by a car. You still have to go to your own automobile insurer, and they will pay you accident benefits. It doesn't affect your premiums, doesn't do anything like that, because presumably it wasn't your fault here, but the point is that it's your own automobile insurer Mm -hmm. that has to pay for the accident benefits. If you don't have your own auto insurer, well, then... uh, we have to figure out if you are insured on any other policy. Maybe your spouse has insurance for which you qualify under. Perhaps you are listed there under that insurer. Yeah. So, so you're not the primary driver, but you're listed. If no one has insurance that is accessible to you, well, then the driver of the vehicle that hits you is responsible for paying you the benefits. You think okay. it would be them off the top, like they're the ones who hit you. You, you they, would think you know. so, but that's the way the legislation is structured. Yeah. You have to go to your own automobile insurer, even though you were walking at a time that you were uh, struck. Uh, now, of course, keep in mind, we're talking about accident benefits. You also have the option, if your injuries are more severe, of actually making a claim for pain and suffering against the person that hit, hit you, you, right? right. And, or, or, and as well as the owner of the vehicle that hit you. So again, very important, these are two distinct claims and as an, as an individual who was struck by a car, you have that ability to make those claims. And, you know, let's talk about fault because that's actually really important here. Oftentimes you have this uh, argument by uh, car drivers, uh, vehicle drivers who are saying, well, I didn't see, you know, that person, he came out of nowhere, uh, he was jaywalking, etc. In a normal car accident situation where you have two cars colliding, the person who is injured who's making a claim has right. to prove that the other driver was negligent. Right in order to recover any monetary uh, damages for pain and suffering, income loss, etc. Okay, So you and I are in a car accident, uh, I sideswipe you, you have to prove that I was at fault. 
Now you do that by uh, providing the, the motor vehicle accident report, witnesses, etc. But if you have a situation of a car versus a pedestrian, the onus is reversed under the law. What does that mean? It means that as the pedestrian, you don't have to prove that the driver was at fault. The law presumes wow. that the driver is at fault. So the driver of the car is going to have to argue and explain why it is he or she is not at fault. Mm-hmm. The result at the end of the day is that it makes it easier for pedestrians to make claims for compensation against drivers. Fair or unfair is a different story, but that's what the law says. Two questions. One, if uh, A, it's a hit and run, you don't know who hit you because you're lying all broken up on the sidewalk. And number two, if the person driving, say a kid swiped the car or otherwise, they don't have insurance. Their insurance is uh, is lapsed or whatever. Well, that's a very good, uh, right? yeah, absolutely, and, and, and that does happen. And, and again, from an accident benefit standpoint, if you as a pedestrian have your own auto insurer, well, you go to them, right? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, the legislation provides us to be able to go after the person who hit you. If you right. don't know who that person is and you have no other insurance uh, to go after, then you can apply to the uh, Ontario Motor Vehicle Accident Fund, right. which is essentially a fund that is there as a payer of last resort if there is absolutely no insurance available. But, you know, it's it's capped at $200,000 yep. in terms of what you can get from them. But they are there and you can make that claim. Yeah, it's usually, I guess it's more the case would be a hit and run more likely than somebody not having insurance on either side, right? Most people do. That's right, yeah, car. and most people do. And, you know, I, in, in most cases, the driver will stop. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're going to have witnesses. The police will likely attend. I'm talking about if there's injuries, of course. So you usually don't see those kinds of situations of somebody hitting a pedestrian and then just running away or, or driving away. But if that does happen, you do have recourse. It's another reason why you always said, and you've said several times in the show, it's always good to take the optional or at least max out the insurance that you carry at all times. Right? Absolutely. And it know, doesn't cost you that until much you more. need it, right? Uh, exactly. And you know, with insurance companies reducing more and more benefits, mm-hmm. it becomes more critical to make sure that right. you speak with your broker, you speak with your insurer as soon as possible so that you can... Uh, increase the amount of benefits. And again, the cost of increasing those benefits is minimal compared to the actual benefits that are going to be available to you if you're injured. We'll take a, a quick break. Back into more of that. 416-216-5910. Uh, the number to get hold of Savannah anytime when the show's on or off. And you can go to help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. This is the Insurance and Injury Law Show. It's right here. Talk Radio, AM 640. 416-216-5910 and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We'll get to a few emails as the show progresses here through the hour. Uh, continue with what we were talking about before the week there was, some cases. Yeah. Okay, so I have one one case that actually came uh, through my email here just as I was on the way to the station, which was really interesting because it's not the normal slip and fall or a car accident. Uh, in this particular case, an individual, Mr. T, let's call him Mr. T, he called on behalf of his mother. It's not the, the Mr. The T. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not the Mr. T, but you have this Mr. T who called on behalf of his mother who's elderly. She's, I think, 89 years old, I see her. Uh, she had a slip and fall incident or a fall incident uh, 10 months ago. Uh, his mom was exiting her apartment building in the rear exit. She lost her balance and fell down three flights of stairs. Now, here's the key. There are no handrails. She broke her arm in two places, and she had to wear a shoulder uh, to hand cast for several months. She was going to physio, uh, but um, she felt that it was making her hand worse, so she didn't continue with that. She was recommended to have surgery on that arm. So here you have a situation, which is not the typical, you know, I slipped on a puddle of water or an ice outside or I was hit by a car. In this case, and I can tell you that I've, I've, I've checked really quickly um, on the way here onto the station with a friend of mine who's an engineer who deals with construction of buildings, and he said it's absolutely against building code not to not have handrails. Really. Exactly. 
Uh, and that may seem common sense to you, John, but it's amazing how many building code violations there are just across Ontario. And, and people just get away with it. I mean, that's why you have people like Mike Holmes, obviously, having shows and talking to people mm-hmm. about safety. So in this case, just by virtue of the fact that you're dealing uh, with an apartment building and it has elderly people, clearly, and here you have this lady who's going down the stairs, irrespective of any arguments that she should have known or she should not have uh, uh, gone down there or why didn't she use the elevator? I don't know the answers to or these. the front exit or whatever. Right. Yeah. But that, th- those, those uh, points don't absolve the building owner or whoever built the building from responsibility to make sure that uh, the stairs are code compliant. So in this case, our argument is going to be she now is in a state where she broke her hand, she, uh, her, her arm. The surgeon is saying she needs to have surgery. This is severe. This is for someone who is supposed, you know, supposed to live uh, the rest of her life, sort of the golden year, so to speak. Right. And now she's going to be in pain and God knows how restricted she's going to be uh, with, with her arm. So very important to understand that if you are injured or you know someone who is injured and you suspect that there is um, liability, negligence, fault on another party, you have to call me. You have to have a talk with me so that I can tell you if we can do anything for them. And if I think, look, nobody's at fault, accidents sometimes do just happen, I will tell you that. You won't be able to uh, get compensation, but at least you'll know what your legal rights are. In this case, Mr. T did the right thing, called on behalf of his mother, and we will be able to help her. If you've, if you've gone through cases like this before, not that you're a, you know, a building inspector, but say that building is 50 years old and that stairway was put in there, saws railing, when it was, before it was actually code to have a railing there, it doesn't matter. They have to update stuff like that, do they not? Yeah, I mean, you know, the argument for the building is going to be exactly that, yeah. that you know, how are we going to go in and start uh, um, remedying all these defects? And, of course, building codes get updated. Mm-hmm. Our argument is very simple. It's foreseeable. It makes sense that if you have an elderly person who is using that staircase and they are, you know, they don't have the best balance, that they may end up falling as a result of no hand railings. So irrespective of what the building code says or when the building was constructed, there is an argument there that the building ought to have foreseen that this could happen. And and so they owe the duty of care to their residents to make sure that proper safety measures were in place. And in this case, clearly they did not do so. Injury calculator. Beautiful, beautiful it. tool. This, this thing, I'm telling you, it's getting used left, right, and center. People are using it. What is it? It's essentially a database that we created online uh, that allows people to go on it for free and input a few key pieces of information, not about themselves. In other words, you're not putting in your, your phone number or your name. You're just literally telling the calculator, here's where I fell or here's where the car accident happened. What's my age? What injury did I suffer? The severity of the injury. And so it takes you about 15, 20 seconds max to go through it. Uh, You basically uh, point and click. And at the end, the calculator goes through a database of cases that we have assembled from across the country, court cases, where courts have looked at cases with injuries that are similar to the ones that the person using the calculator inputs. And they tell you, look, based on the case law in Canada, based on the database that we have, here is what you could potentially be looking at in terms of what's owed to you for pain and suffering in dollars. So you have an ankle fracture, you had to have surgery on it, uh, you are 40 years old, the calculator may tell you that you may be owed thirty to $50,000 um, know, for, for pain and suffering. Pain and suffering. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And this is important to understand. It's for pain and suffering only, right? And the reason you have that range is because different injuries affect people differently. And so you have judges in different jurisdictions that have come up to different amounts. But you as an individual who doesn't necessarily 
you know, do this kind of work on a daily basis, it happened to you, you broke uh, your knee, you tore your shoulder, your mother did, your friend did, you want to know, as a starting point, what could you be looking at in terms of compensation? Yeah. And it's very important because that's one of the first questions I get asked when people call me, not because they're greedy, but they want to understand uh, what exactly they're looking at. Is it, you know, is, is it worthwhile to pursue? And uh, the calculator does exactly what a lawyer would do in terms of giving you a range of what you can look at for pain and suffering. And again, and very important, only pain and suffering. Right. That if could be you, a small component. Small of it, right? component. You can have an ankle fracture. You know, that's a standard example we give. You have an ankle fracture, you know, but, but you're on your feet all day. You're unable to work for uh, the next two years uh, at a job that uh, pays you 50 grand uh, a year. You just lost $100,000. The ankle fracture may be worth 40000 It's a dwarfed by the amount of money that you're losing because you can't work. Income loss. Income loss, exactly. And, and there's other heads of damage, other categories of compensation that you can be looking at. But the calculator, what it does is it gives you a starting point of analysis. What can you get for your pain and suffering? Injurycalculator.ca. Check it out when you got a moment. It's completely anonymous, and there's a button at the bottom. You want to go on and contact Savannah. If you've seen the number, you can go ahead and do that as well. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. If you have other questions during the show, punch them in. The chances are it's been answered because there's a large database there as well. Lots more of the show coming up. We'll return with an email, uh, the number 416 216 5910 and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. This is the Insurance Injury Law Show. It's right here, Talk Radio, AM 640. 416 216 5910 and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. I mentioned some emails. We'll get through a, a few of these during the show and some other topics as well. Laurie from Barry writes in says, uh, My husband and I were in a car accident almost two years ago. Hello, he was driving and I was a passenger. Another car hit us from behind when we were on a red light. My husband went back to work three months after the accident, but I haven't. Can we be reimbursed for the money we've lost? Well, Laurie, thank you for sending this email because it does happen quite often that when I deal with car accidents, I have multiple claimants. And sometimes people are injured worse than others uh, who are in the same vehicle. And in this case, um, I'm not sure what the actual injuries are, but it seems like uh, the injuries that you sustained, Laurie, are more significant that, uh, yeah. than the injuries that your husband sustained because he went back to work. Keep in mind, John, and we're going to talk about this a bit later, that sometimes you go back to work because you absolutely have to, despite all the pain. You may not be well. You may not be yeah. well, exactly. And does that mean that you have no uh, claim for uh, the income component uh, of, of compensation here. Right. It, that does not mean that. But Laurie, to go back to your case, uh, can you be reimbursed for the money of loss? Well, first of all, uh, it seems to me if the accident happened two years ago, number one, you're running up against a limitation period. So you have to start a claim if your injuries are still affecting you the way that they are, that you can't work. I would want to know a little bit more about your husband's injuries as well, because it's possible he's got a claim as well against the at-fault driver, the person who hit you guys from behind. Now, you're going to be entitled to pain and suffering damages, what we were just talking about, yep. right? In the calculator, you can actually go and figure out, based on your injuries, what you can be looking at if you have chronic pain to your back, to your neck, etc. cetera. Uh, in terms of the income loss, you should have received uh, income replacement benefits from your own automobile insurer. And the way that the insurer calculates that is that they look at your income over a period of time and they pay you up to 70% of your gross okay. uh, payment, whatever you were getting for a month, for example. If you were getting $1,000, uh, they're looking at 70% gross of that. You're getting 700 bucks basically for the, you know, for the uh, month. Uh, now, keep in mind that uh, in, in most standard policies, uh, you will get only up to $400, 400 a right, week yeah. unless you purchase optional benefits that can shoot you up to $600 a week, $800, 1000 yeah. 
That's why it's so important to, by the way, get extra benefits, to get optional benefits. Uh, in terms of uh, the money you lost, I'm going to be uh, talking to you a bit about the future. Oftentimes, John, people come to me and they ask me, can I be reimbursed for X, Y, and Z? I had a, a neighbor that I had to pay uh, 200 bucks for to help me with snow removal, right. with grass Cut cutting. grass, exactly. shop. Absolutely. And so they want reimbursement. I went to the pharmacy. I had to get these medications. You know, I'm out of pocket $3,000 because of this accident that happened a year ago, two years ago. Right. Well, okay, that's one thing. Yes, you are going to be entitled to compensation for those. But what about the future? What if in the future you won't be able to do certain things around the house? What if in the future you're not going to be able to go back to your full-time job? What if in the future you're going to have to retire earlier than you otherwise would have because of the injuries from the accident? So oftentimes, the conversation, Lori, is not so much about the past. I can definitely tell you what you can get for the past in terms of uh, the income loss you lost, uh, the pain and suffering, out-of-pocket expenses. But I'm very concerned in a case like yours about the future. What does the future hold? And no one has a crystal ball, but that's why it's so crucial that we have that conversation that I can tell you, here's what you could be looking at for the future. And then you and your husband make a decision as to how you want to proceed. You're always going to find that uh, myself, lawyers at my office, we don't push you to do anything. But when we tell you that you have a case, that you're entitled to compensation, again, I use the word entitled. What I mean to say is you are owed this compensation, okay? Because these insurance companies are not going to just write you a check. You're going to have to come to us and us are going and, and we're going to have to represent you and advance your case in a very logical way, in a way that shows that you've suffered the injuries that you suffered, that you've suffered the losses you suffered, that you're going to suffer them in the future, and that you deserve you deserve this compensation. And you should mention as well that it takes a bit of time, and the two-year mark is almost here, right? It, so it is. get on it. That's very important. You know, the amount of cases that I see um, reported uh, in, in the various legal publications where people have missed the limitation period uh, or, or where lawyers have actually missed the limitation period. And then, then of course, there's a negligence claim against a lawyer, which we never well, want to see. Uh, it, it does happen, oh. John. It happens more frequently than you can imagine. And, and, you know, the problem is that once you're past the limitation period, it doesn't mean you have no claim because there are exceptions to the limitation period, but you do not want to find yourself fighting those exceptions. Mm-hmm. Once you do that, your case gets, from a practical standpoint, reduced in terms of value because there's always a risk that you're going to be shut out if you actually proceed with the case all the way to court. Okay, So you never right. want to be in that situation where you've missed a limitation period. Never. Plus, isn't it also the fact that if you've waited almost two years, your insurance companies go, well, a lot, a lot has happened to you in the last two years. Where do we, you know, how do you stand on, on, on your injuries and everything else? What, how have you been living life for the last two years, right? As opposed to being right on it right away, right? That's what they, I mean, you've worked on that side. That's the angle they're going to take, right? Yeah, the insurance companies are going to be looking at what happened those past two years, and you're absolutely right. So let's see. Uh, let, let, let's take a look at two scenarios. Mm-hmm. One where someone is injured and, let's say, within a few weeks or a month or two months gets a lawyer involved. Yeah and a case where someone does not get a lawyer for almost two years and then gets a lawyer. Right. You know, if assuming, of course, in scenario one, that the person got a good lawyer, that good lawyer will tell that person, listen, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you need to do to strengthen your case. And so moving forward, here's what you need to do in terms of how uh, you speak with your doctors, uh, you know, making sure that there is a medical record that really records all of your appointments and, and, you know, making sure that you understand how social media is perceived so that, you know, over the two year period, uh, you're not putting things up there that are going to prejudice you down the road, right? Because as as a regular individual, we're not thinking uh, this is how it's going to affect our claim, our legal claim. 
Whereas the lawyer should be thinking about that and guiding the person, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to tell my client to do certain things that are not true. Absolutely not. But I'm going to tell them, look, you have to be careful in certain things that you do. You have to make sure that uh, if, if, for example, a doctor tells you uh, that you need to get this treatment and this treatment and this treatment, that you follow those recommendations. Yeah. Someone else may say, ah, it's okay. I don't have to do that. Not realizing that it's a landmine because down the road, the insurance company is going to look back and say, why didn't you go? Why didn't you do that? Exactly. You obviously were not interested in getting right. better, right? So very important to go and seek legal advice as soon as possible so that you know how to strengthen your uh, legal case down the road. 416-216-5910 and help at the insurancelawyer.ca. Lots more show coming up. We'll get to some emails, some questions about cyclists as well as we continue with the insurance and injury law show. Talk radio, AM640. 416-216-5910 and help at the insurancelawyer.ca. If you haven't checked it out, go to injurycalculator.ca. An amazing tool that the guys put together, what, a couple years ago probably now, helped uh, hundreds if not thousands of people seek what they can get for pain and suffering. couple clicks and you're, uh, you're off. That's all it takes. Uh, cyclists. So, cycle, we talked about uh, pedestrians off the top. So, is it different than cyclists? If they get hit by a car and they're injured, can the cyclists get compensated? They can. And, in fact, the reason why we have cyclists on the agenda today is because, obviously, I see a lot of those as well. And the rules are very similar to what they are for pedestrians. You have that reverse onus, for example, yeah. right? If a car hits a cyclist, cyclist gets injured, the cyclist does not have to prove that the car driver was at fault. It's assumed. It's assumed. The driver has to prove that he or she is not at fault. And again, just like with pedestrians, if a cyclist needs certain benefits like medical rehabilitation, income replacement benefits, attendant care, all those kind of benefits that you would need after a car accident, after being injured as a result of a car, first they go to their own insurance company. Okay, If they don't have an insurance company, we figure out if there is any other insurance, perhaps uh, a relative or a spouse, someone else that uh, we can make a claim under. And if there is no one else, then of course, it's the insurance company of the car that hit them. And again, just like with pedestrians, very important to understand, the cyclist can make a claim for compensation for pain and suffering, assuming that their injuries are serious, against the driver and the owner of the car that hit them. So very important. But, you know, we also have to, to remember that just like pedestrians, cyclists have to follow certain rules of the road. Right. I mean, you know, they have to uh, uh, make sure that they signal, that they obey traffic lights, uh, that they're, they're not riding in pedestrian crosswalks. And they're on the road with the cars. They're I mean, on the road. Especially them, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, there is there's a bias out there as well uh, from a lot of people, obviously, that uh, drive through the city on a daily basis. And they, a lot of them don't like cyclists. So you have to understand that, you know, in a, in a way, uh, as a cyclist, even when you do bring a claim like that, you have to be cognizant that there's going to be a bit of a bias against you, a potential bias against you uh, from the insurance companies representing the cars right. against whom you're making a claim. So just make sure that you follow the rules of the road. Don't take shortcuts uh, because that's going to come and bite you in the butt. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Sonia writes from Peterborough, says, last January, a good friend of mine slipped on ice. At a nearby school parking lot while walking her dog, she broke her ankle, had to have surgery. Uh, since then, she hasn't been able to do many things, and I uh, help her with shopping, taking care of the kids. I was listening to you last few shows and wanted to email you and find out if she can make any claim for compensation. We just touched on that. Yeah, we just did. And you know, this reminds me of a case that I had a few years back um, with a lady in, uh, I think it was Ingersoll, Ontario. And it's exactly that. She, she, she took her dog out for a walk. It was, it was a freezing day. There was ice everywhere in that parking lot. And so anyways, she broke her ankle. It was fairly severe. She had surgery on it. 
and we had a claim against uh, the uh, school property. And of course, they immediately brought in uh, the contractor who was responsible for snow clearing and ice clearing. And, you know, the argument that the school brought was that, look, this is school property. Why was she walking there? Outside school hours. Outside school hours. But our argument was very simple. There are no fences. Yeah, it's it's like open. Gated. There's a ton of houses around there, people walking with dogs all the time. Totally. So it's foreseeable that people would be walking there. In fact, it would make sense that they would with their pets. Nice try, though. It, nice try, exactly. But, you know, <laughs> but they were pushing it pretty yeah. hard. And um, But it, let's say it was a severe claim. It, it was a fairly significant ankle fracture. And we ended up resolving the case on very, very good terms uh, the the insurance company representing the school paid uh, a good chunk of money to this lady because they understood that at the end of the day they had a responsibility to make sure that the area was reasonably safe for people who are walking there. Uh, so, so um, Sonia, to go back to your question, this is analogous. Of course, I would want to have a little bit more information. I want to know if the area was fenced. Uh, I. I, I would want to know what other uh, uh, damages uh, your friend suffered. In other words, is she able to work? Is she, is she not able to work? Um, ha- has she walked in the area before? Uh, has she noticed that the area was icy before? Right. You know, we have all these questions that we need to ask. But generally speaking, an occupier of an area, whether it's a parking lot or a sidewalk or a store, whatever it is, an occupier under the law in Ontario, has an obligation to ensure that the premises, the area upon which other people are either invited onto, like a store, or can just walk through, is in fact safe for those individuals. And if a person gets injured as a result of lack of either uh, inspection or service to that area, then the occupier is potentially at fault. And Sonia can claim for compensation because it, it would be smart if she was keeping, you know, uh, paper records of what she's done for her friends so far. If not, she can start, I guess. Right? That's exactly true. And and again, this this touches on another point, which we've talked a lot before about. And a lot of lawyers, I can tell you, having done a lot of defense work in the past, where I've seen claims being brought and I've defended them, I've defended the insurance companies. People are missing out on this. You know, uh, you have a serious injury, you pay your neighbor or you pay your friend or you even promise to pay them for these various services and help. But nothing is in writing. There's no schedule. There's nothing there that confirms here's what we agreed on. As soon as you have that on paper, even via email, right? You send an email saying, you know, you helped me today, Joe, uh, for one hour you were doing X, Y, and and Z uh, in the backyard. Uh, I'm going to pay you whatever, 20 bucks, 30 bucks. That accumulates over the course of weeks, months, and potentially years. And you can advance that as an out-of-pocket expense. You as the injured individual, you can say, because of this injury, because of your fault, I had to incur this, or now I'm going to have to incur this. I've promised to pay. That becomes an out-of-pocket expense. That is recoverable. But it's always good to have a word file or an Excel spreadsheet or something, just to jot That's it right. down quick and have it for, for you know hard copy. Well, right? exactly. If you don't have that, then two years down the road, you're being asked, well, you know, how much work did Joe do for you? You're going to say, well, approximately X, Y, and Z, you know, approximately 30 hours worth of work. Well, that has a lot less credibility yeah. than if you, in fact, have a schedule or a diary or something that shows that, you know, contemporaneous with the times that Joe was helping you, you and he recorded what he did for you and for how long. We'll talk a little more about loss of income and get to some more emails. This here. It's 416-216-5910. That's Savan's direct number, and it is help at the insurancelawyer.ca. Insurance and Injury Law Show, Talk Radio, AM640. 416-216-5910 and help at the insurancelawyer.ca. That is the email used by George. Gets to us from Oshawa. 
says, uh, my wife has been diagnosed with severe depression and has been receiving long-term disability payments for eight months. Her insurance adjuster called last week and said that they uh, wanted to try to go back to work, but my wife's psychologist says that she can't right now. She spends most of her day in bed and cries all the time. I, I don't know what to do or how to deal with the insurance company. Please help. George from Oshawa. George, the first thing you need to do is give me a call. Okay, I'm going to analyze the scenario in a second, John, but George, please give me a call or email me um, and, and let's have a chat. Uh, I'd like to speak with your wife as well. We can definitely help. Uh, John, we've had so many cases at my office uh, dealing with psychological and mental issues uh, for individuals who have been either cut off or denied disability for very, very poor reasons from the insurance company. And, you know, the problem is that these individuals who are suffering from these illnesses and these disabilities, oftentimes, you know, the mere number showing up on the call display from the adjuster or an email coming through sends them into another episode. Right. Because they just become extremely anxious. They can't eat. They can't breathe. Right. It just, it, 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 it creates a situation where they just don't know what to do. And, you know, and, and I've heard from psychologists and psychiatrists who have told me, asked me, why are insurance companies doing this? It actually does not benefit them. No. It means that these individuals are going to end up being on their disability plans that much longer. Let them be. Well, I don't have an answer for you except to say that the, the rationale, as far as I can tell, is to pressure the person to just give up, uh, to create a situation where the person is just in, in such a state, they just want nothing to do with the insurance company. Yeah, they give up on their case. They stop uh, claiming. They don't pursue their rights. And the insurance companies end up saving all this money. For sure. And it's absolutely, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. I just, I don't understand how the law is, is not more forceful when it comes to that. So, George, let's talk about your wife's situation here. You're saying that she has a psychologist that says that she cannot go back to work right now. I would like to know whether or not the insurance company has responded to what that psychologist is saying. I would like to know if the psychologist had put in writing a report that says, here's the reason why your wife is unable to go back to work, and here's her prognosis for the foreseeable future. Because, George, if the psychologist who has been treating your wife is saying that your wife is simply unable to do any work at this point, which makes sense to me if she's in bed all day and cries all the time, or whatever, whatever the reason is, and if the psychologist uh, is, is in good standing with whichever regulatory body the psychologist yep. is with, there is no reason that I can think of that the insurance company is saying she should try to go back to work because at best, at best, uh, she will be in the same state. At worst, she's going to be in a much worse state by trying to go. And I've seen this happen time and time again. And George, I'll tell you this. If you call me, if... I tell you that, um, in fact, your wife should not be going back to work based on the documentation and review because I want to qualify that. I want to see the documents. I want to see the reports from the psychologist, if there are any. I want to see the letters from the insurance company. If I tell you she should not go back, there's a very simple solution here. You get me involved, I will deal with the adjuster. You're not going to have to deal with the adjuster. Your wife's not going to have to deal with the adjuster. Trust me when I tell you that the adjuster is going to lay off. I'm going to get them off your back. But you have to call me, you have to email me so that I can actually have a chat with you to understand a bit more. But John, this happens literally daily. The people contact us in these kinds of situations and they just don't know what to do. They're absolutely helpless. Well, let's carry that over then to this. And then we're talking about, uh, you know, the topic of long-term disability. Can people suffering from psychological illnesses, uh, can they qualify for LTD? 
Yes, yeah. And, and you know, there's a myth out there that they can't, that unless you see it, unless you see a broken bone, right. the person can go back to work. No, that's absolute nonsense. Mental health claims are completely legitimate. The courts have recognized that. Doctors recognize that. And guess what? Insurance companies recognize that. But it doesn't stop insurance companies from bullying people who are uh, experiencing mental health issues and, and disabilities. Remember this, unless you stand up for your rights, unless you have me involved, for example, the insurance company is going to continue trying to pick on you because you seem like an easy target because there's no one looking out for you, right? So very, very important to understand that if you or somebody you know is experiencing a mental illness or a disability, something that uh, allows them or or qualifies them for long-term disability, it's very important that they do certain things to strengthen their case for LTD. Um, one of the things that, ne- that, that they need to do is they need to make sure that they're in the care of someone who's very qualified, someone like a psychiatrist, a psychologist. By the way, they're not the same thing. No. Okay, very important. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor. Yeah, that's right. uh, they prescribe uh, certain medications, psychologists too. But again, there's a very uh, big difference between the two. That said, you have to have someone um, that, that is caring for you on a regular basis. You have to make sure that you follow the recommendations. We talked about that before. Sometimes they prescribe certain medications, for example, that are not good for you, that you know, just simply don't work for you. You, you feel pretty yep. bad after taking them. So just tell them that. That's fine. And they'll uh, replace it with something else. But the, the important thing is that you have someone that you are in their care uh, regularly. You follow their recommendations. Uh, and, and, you know, very, very important to understand that if you stop treatments, Against their advice, that's going to be it's going to be used Not against you, well. right? So, so you have to make sure that you don't do that. The last thing I would say is be very careful of what you post to social media, especially when you're dealing with someone that has either a mental illness or some kind of a psychological uh, impairment. If you post things to social media, which many people do, uh, notwithstanding their illnesses, it's going to be perceived particularly if you show yourself as being very happy and, and you know, on trips. Which most people do on social media, like right. Facebook, yeah, it's shiny happy, right? Exactly. Uh, that can be used against you by the insurance company because it's going to be about perception. It's not going to be about reality, right? right? And if the perception is that you're all well and good and you're healthy, insurance company is going to take that and run with it. So be very careful what you post on social media. We'll get to another email here. It's uh, 416-216-5910. That is Savannah's direct number and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Lots more of the show coming right up. Talk Radio, AM640. The number when the show's over or anytime, 416-216-5910 and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca through email. And uh, we'll get to one more here from Janice. says, uh, my husband is 53 and suffers from severe arthritis in his hands. He worked as a computer programmer. He was getting LTD for almost two years and recently qualified for a CPP disability. The insurance company had him tested to see what other jobs he could do, and they are saying that he qualifies for at least five other types of work, but the reality is that he can't do any of these because of his arthritis. We're very concerned that he will be off, or at least cut off his disability payments. The insurance adjuster hinted that this will happen pretty soon. What should we do? Well, Janice, he did the right thing by contacting me because if the insurance adjuster had hinted that, well, first of all, the first hint is that they sent him to this assessment to right. figure out what other work he can do. Usually insurance companies send you to these assessments in order to uh, uh, give themselves a launching pad saying, you know what, our assessors uh, identified the following five or 10 other types of work. The fact that they've identified those uh, jobs doesn't mean you can do them. Okay, oftentimes I find those reports completely useless. And what I do in response, and I'll show those to uh, my clients' treating practitioners, whether it's a family doctor or uh, an orthopedic surgeon, whoever it is that's treating my client, a psychologist perhaps, 
and, and I'll get them to comment as to whether or not my client uh, is able, in fact, to do any of these jobs. Now, in this case, Janice, if your husband really cannot work, they are now telling you, they're giving you a, um, a heads up that they are going to cut him off. Yeah. It's extremely important that I get involved ASAP. Very, very important because we have to be ready for that moment when he gets cut off. Oftentimes, oftentimes, if they tell you they're going to cut you off, they're going to, in fact, cut you off. We've had situations in the past where I've been able to get involved and avert the cutoff. Sometimes I avert it completely. Sometimes uh, I'm just postponing it for a little bit. Either way, it's very important that we have a discussion right now so that we can start creating the case against the insurer. The sooner we start a claim against them when the cutoff happens, the sooner they're going to pay you and your husband what is owed to you and your husband, well, to your husband legally. Okay, very, very important. But John, I see this day in and day out that insurance companies will send you to their quote-unquote, experts, they'll get the reports, they'll rely on those to tell you we're going to cut you off. They won't listen to reason. They won't listen to the person's treating practitioners who are saying, we've been treating this person for X amount of months or years. We we don't care what they say. We're going to do whatever we want to do. And at the end of the day, I get involved and we end up resolving these cases fairly quickly. We resolve them on very good terms. And of course, everyone asks, well, why do insurance companies do this in the first place if they end up paying? Because Janice, for every email uh, coming from someone like yourself, there's probably 10 or 15 or 20 other people who actually don't do this, who don't contact me, who don't even know that they should contact me. Exactly, which is why I tell people, if you're listening and you know someone in that situation, be a good friend, be a good family member, tell them about us, tell them to go to mydisabilityquestions.ca, make sure that they understand that they have to contact us so that we can evaluate the case properly and tell them what they can do. And that person and or doctor that's assessing you for the insurance company, big surprise, getting paid by the insurance company. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's some cases where they're going to say, you know what, this person really can't go back to work, but chances are, you know what I mean, it's going to be against you, yeah? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Look, if I tell you you have a case, and these cases are very simple to assess, in these situations, it's very simple for me to just look at a few of the documents that you're going to give me, because you're going to have those documents, and to start that claim against the insurance company, John... In this case with Janice, one of the things that she said, which is interesting, is that her husband qualified for CPP disability, right? So the government agrees that he's fully disabled. It's not a simple thing to get, CPP disability. You have to show that your disability is prolonged and that it's severe. Clearly, the government agrees that it is. So I'm curious as to why the insurance company saw fit to send him to this assessment only to use that as a launching pad to cut them off. What other uh, common mistakes do you see that lead to people being cut off? Well, there are five generally uh, um, uh, mistakes that we see uh, that happen. And uh, it's interesting because no matter how much I talk about it, yeah. people keep making those mistakes. So the first <laughs> one is they wait way too long to contact me. Okay, And sometimes the limitation period is passed. Sometimes it's not passed, but the delay means a delay in starting the claim, which means it will take a lot longer. To get the disabled person the money they're owed. Number two, not getting the treat uh, the treating health professionals to provide helpful letters to support their disability. Enough said about that. Okay, if you have someone who's treating you, make sure that they write a letter to the insurance company. Correct. Uh, number three, not following through on treatment recommendations. Very important. You have to follow treatment recommendations. If you don't, that's going to get used against you. No. Insurance company is going to say that you're not trying to get better. Number four posting unhelpful things on social media. Again, okay, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to understand that perception is key. Number five, 
and this really, really irritates me, is trying to fight the insurer's decision to cut off or deny your claim on your own. Things like when people say, you know what, I'm not going to call Sivan, I'm just going to try and appeal the process myself. All that happens in these cases is that they end up calling me, but a year later, after they've gone through two appeals, completely exhausted financially, mentally, physically, and just don't know what to do and have almost given up. Why do that? Call me at the beginning. Email me at the beginning. I'll tell you what your options are, and then you go ahead and decide what you want to do. But don't try and do this on your own. You're not going to operate on yourself, uh, you know, if, right. if, if you need surgery. I mean, it's, it's just, it makes no sense. Till next time, it's uh, very simple to get a hold of Savan, 416-216-5910. Make sure you go to injurycalculator.ca. You can see what your pain and suffering would be worth if you're in an accident or a slip and fall or anything under that uh, particular umbrella. And email always help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Till next time, the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Talk Radio, AM 640.